Well, hello there and welcome again. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. I want to welcome you to this Facebook uh, Live training event. Really excited about what we have going on today. I'll uh, tell you a little bit about the Alliance before we get into our main presentation. I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across our nation. Uh, our organization, which now we have uh, eight, eight, eight volunteers that are helping out and we've got a growing audience, but we advocate for change uh, in policy. So legislative change to reduce uh, and eliminate practices of restraint and seclusion because we believe there are far better ways of working with kids. Today, I'm very excited to have Christopher Feltner join us uh, for a live training event. We're going to tell you a little bit more about Christopher here in a moment. Uh, but this event was really uh, put together to help support parents, teachers, and others uh, during these challenging times. We've, we've had uh, really challenging times with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and of course, we want to find ways to help uh, people that are part of our community. Uh, I do want to let you know that we will be taking questions at the end of the presentation today. So if you can hold your questions until the end, that would be fantastic. Also, today's presentation will be recorded uh, and will be available both on Facebook and YouTube as a video. We also make the audio available as an audio podcast, which you can download on iTunes or Spotify or otherwise. So let me now uh, introduce you first to my co-host, uh, my co-host, Beth Tully, and Beth is a director of educational strategy for the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. Um, Beth retired in 2018 from a leadership position in Virginia's lead agency for early intervention for infants and toddlers. Uh, she has experience as a parent and a grandparent of children that have had behavioral challenges. And this has really fueled her passion to help improve the lives of children and families uh, through education, mutual support and advocacy. I'm, I'm really proud not only to, to have the opportunity to work with Beth, uh, but to be able to, to call her a friend and, and colleague in all of this that we're doing. So Beth, welcome today. Thank you, Guy. And I'm delighted to introduce um, Christopher um, for today, Christopher Felton. And first I wanna tell you that he started at Grafton as a direct service provider. Mm -hmm. And um, I, th I think that's pretty cool. And he has moved into the position of training and performance architect for Ukera systems and also for the Grafton Integrated um, Network. Did I say all the words? Grafton Integrated Health Network. I knew I'd leave that <laughs> one, <laughs> which is based out of Winchester, Virginia. Right and has done training throughout the United States, Canada, and Australia, mm -hmm. and, and it's trauma-based training. So we are delighted to welcome you here today for this yeah, Thanks for having me, Thank absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. Welcome. And, and, you know, those of us that are that are part of this community, um, you know, we see the stories all the time about the great work that, that you and Kim and others are doing at Ukero. Uh, and just it's a pleasure to have you here. So if you're ready, uh, if you want to bring up your presentation, we can go ahead all and get right. started. And you should see it now. All right, perfect. I'm going to go ahead and bring it up in the stream and you'll be ready to go. And I want to remind folks, we will be holding questions off till the end. You're welcome to put your comments, uh, add your comments now and add questions, but we will formally get to the questions at the end. So with that, uh, Christopher, we're going to turn it over to you and Beth and I are going to disappear and let you take it away. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Hey, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, today, we're going to talk about patience in a time of panic. What a time to talk about trauma, right? No one has trauma during this period of COVID, I'm sure, right? Uh, and it's something that's pretty prevalent, something that we're all dealing with in one way or another during this. So it's it's a pleasure to be a part of this series that 
uh, Guy and his folks have put together because really after looking at Dr. Delahook's presentation that she did, which is excellent, if you haven't had a chance, you know, check that out definitely, as well as obviously Dr. Green's presentation, I really think that what we're going to talk about today is going to be a perfect companion piece to both of those, as well as uh, my coworker, Allison Hoffmaster, who will be doing a presentation, I believe, next week. So, so let's give a little overview of what we're talking about here with trauma. But before that, we really need to talk up front about what the core belief is with this training, because what we're going to be talking about today is really a much, much, much condensed version of a much larger, broader training. So this is our core belief with carry systems, with the trauma-based training that we do, portions of which we're going to present today. So we believe that all people want to do well. All people want to do well. When they wake up in the morning, everyone wants it to be a good day, right? But as you know, things happen where things can go wrong and can cause reactions in us. So when someone is struggling, whether it's someone with a disability and or trauma, we see it as our responsibility as the person working with them, caring for them, to help them through it, right? It's our responsibility. We are collaborators with the person to help them through the difficulties, right? So sometimes I get the question in training, well, why is it my responsibility? I'm not the one acting like this. I'm not the one being non-compliant and all those things. Well, it, this is important belief to have because one, your mindset becomes your approach. Think about that for a second. Your mindset becomes your approach. So if you expect things to be a certain way, that's how you're going to act, right? Um, if you believe that your role is to be the authoritative figure, then that's going to come across with it. If your goal is you do this because I said so, because I'm the adult, I'm the caregiver, I'm the educator, I'm the parent, then that's going to come across in how you talk and how you act and react to those that you're working with. Another important thing of keeping this belief is it keeps the focus on the cause, the root, or the, and or the skill deficit versus labeling language. I mean, as you know, it's, it's everywhere, whether it's conversation, whether it's on TV, social media, <laughs> right, everywhere, labeling language. Oh, you know, this person's manipulative. This person's needy, attention-seeking, uh, non-compliant, and all these things. But really, all that does is force me in my mindset to look at the person as their behavior versus looking at, okay, this is the behavior, but why, right? Why are they doing this? And that's going to be a core of what we're going to talk about here for the next hour is looking at the why. Why is this happening? And also, what can we do to support this person and help teach them through it? So it's a collaborative thing. It's not just it's not competitive. It's not all the expectations, not on the child. We have a big part of this responsibility with them. And a, a trauma-based mindset also avoids traumatization and re-traumatization because you're less likely to say and do things that can cause another person pain. And we're going to get into some of what we're talking about when we say trauma because ultimately what we want to do in all this, I mean, all the efforts of Guy and Beth and their folks, all of our efforts with Ukiro, Grafton, and I'm sure many of you watching and listening is we're trying to prove quality of life, right? Whether it's not just for the 
to children that we serve, but also staff, family members, everyone involved in this person's life. So first, we're going to look at brain development and interpersonal relationships a little bit. You know, Dr. Delahook talked a little bit in the beginning of her presentation, especially about some of the uh, developmental aspects of behavior. So one thing you're going to notice I'm very passionate into is the neurological, the, all the brain stuff around trauma. So we're going to talk about that a good bit. Starting with neurons and neural pathways. So what you see on the left is a graphic of a neuron. As you can see, you've got a, a parts that receive information, parts that send information through the brain. Really an easy way to think about a neuron is these are your building blocks of learning, right? All of your knowledge base, all of your skill sets, how you've learned to act and react to people, places, and things. That's all dirt of neurons, right? And to, just to give you an idea of how small these are, you know, for years, the thinking was we have approximately 100 billion neurons in the brain when really they've they've got a more accurate read that, no, we have more of like 83, 85 billion. So we're not quite as smart as we thought, right? but still there's a lot of learning that goes on. So if you see the progressive scan next to the graphic on the very first piece of the scan, you can see neurons they're not uniform, right? They come in different shapes and sizes. And then starting at the left and moving over from scan to scan, you see that something's happening with the neurons. So they're, they're getting stronger and they're starting to form what we call neural pathways, right? They're forming these neural pathways. So the question is, well, if neurons are responsible for learning, then why do they need to form these pathways like that? And really what that does by forming these pathways is it, it solidifies learning. It makes it so you can able to do the skill, recall the thing that you need to do quicker, more efficiently, without much effort. I mean, if you can think about this. So I'm sure many of you have children of your own. Or maybe you have a fantastic memory and you can remember being a child. And the first time you tried to learn to take a drink on your own. Right. So if you watch toddlers try to drink, they just can't do it. They drop it. They dump it and everything else, which now as an adult, you pick up the drink and you take a drink and you could do all kinds of other complex functions with that. That's because we have good solidified neural pathways that allow us to do that. So looking at the brain a little bit, we have three main sections we're talking about. We're talking about the hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain. So of these three, the first one that develops first in us is the hindbrain, right? This part in the back. So it makes sense, as if you look at this slide here, the hindbrain is primarily designed for all the basic life functions, right? To keep us alive so that the rest can develop. Uh, some folks refer to the hindbrain as the reptilian brain, because even reptiles have that. Right, except for the Geico lizard, right? He's got all of it, but outside of that. So next, your midbrain develops. And as you can see here, you start to develop more specialized functioning with the growth of the brain. Then finally, once you get to the forebrain, I mean, if you look at the things responsible there, that's pretty essential to our lives. And for those that we're serving, for those that we're trying to teach, for those we're trying to help abstract thinking, learning, language, problem solving, 
impulse control and memory. I mean, really, a good way to think of the forebrain is that's the part of the brain that makes you and me who we are as people. That's the forebrain. Now, the unfortunate thing is not counting any kind of disability or anything else that comes into play. Just with a trauma history alone, the forebrain gets greatly affected. So just with a trauma history that could be affecting an individual's brain, look at the things that could get impaired with that, right? So there's going to be some challenges there. And then if you look at our brains, you know, when you think about it right now, I'm sure a lot of you are watching this from your home, from your work. Me, I'm sitting in our office here at Ucura Systems. And for me, it's easy to operate right now in my forebrain functioning, my highest level functioning. So right now I feel I feel safe. In fact, I'm in my room alone <laughs> at the moment. Um, I don't feel like I'm in danger or anything. So abstract thinking, I can do that. Problem solving, impulse control, language. But here's the thing. Think about if you're feeling comfortable, you're feeling safe right now, you could operate in this upper brain functioning. But what happens when we encounter a situation that makes us fear fearful? Or if we become anxious or upset or angry, right? What are some of the physical things that start to change in your body in those states? Well, I mean, looking at this list, you'd probably look at, well, heartbeat, right? You have an increase in heart rate. Uh, your breathing may become shallow and quicker. Uh, you might swallow. Some people get the nervous swallow, right? Digestion slows or stops when we're in, in a fearful state. The reason I point that out is when something is going on that's happening and affecting those lower functions, it pulls you more and more out of that ability to operate and that forebrain, that higher level thinking. And then later when we start talking about hypervigilance, someone who's in a hypervigilant state, especially for a long period, it's even harder to give them access to that full forebrain thought and even easier to pull them down more into a reactive hindbrain state. So let's talk about our, our basic senses, right? We don't always think a whole lot about these. Yeah, if I want to taste this, I drink it, I eat it, right? I could see things, but we don't necessarily think about our senses, right? But really, this is how we experience the world. And also, this has a, our senses play a big role in our learning experience, right? So if you think about it. What makes something your favorite activity or your favorite experience, your preferred activities, preferred experiences versus something that you avoid at all costs because of how it makes you feel? A lot of that is sensory based, right? Like a lot of times in training, people will talk about, oh, man, I love the beach. Going to the beach, that's my that's my thing. Like that is my favorite thing. So you're like, huh. So what are some of the the sensory-based things that go along with that. And they'll talk about the sound of the waves, seagulls, except for my coworker, Patrick, he's got a traumatic experience with a seagull, but outside of that. So um, the feel of the sand, the warmth, the ocean, maybe the taste of salt water. There's so many sensory-based things that go into just a beach experience. So when all of our senses send us pleasurable input on that, 
that creates a neural pathway where that becomes our preferable thing, right? But then when you take a, a negative experience, something that we hate to do, hate to experience, we avoid it at all costs, that's because the sensory input we get from that also makes a neural pathway that teaches us that these are the things that we don't do. Okay. Now that also plays into our memory, which is a tricky thing. So for those of us who, if we're thinking about our favorite activities, our favorite things, a lot of times we decorate in our lives with these favorite things. Like people that love the beach, you know, in their offices, you'll see like a, they might have a, a beach scene as their laptop wallpaper. They might have posters or pictures up, seashells, sand, and all kinds of things on their desk. So the question is, why would we decorate based on our favorite things, right? I mean, think about someone who's really into their sports teams. Do they just have like a sticker, one decal for their team? No, they've got all kinds of things that they decorate with, including their clothing, right? That constantly reminds them of that pleasurable thing. So really with that, what they're doing is, whether they realize it or not, they're triggering their implicit memory by having those things around that remind them of that pleasurable experience. So when you talk about our memory, we're really talking about two types. Implicit and explicit memory. Now, what we typically think of as memory is explicit. I purposefully trying to recall information or trying to remember something. Like today, I, I had to log in by 3.15. So I was like, oh, yeah, what time's that? 3.15, I got to get on. That's explicit memory. Implicit memory happens whether we want it to or not. Right? We experience something through our senses, and it automatically takes us to a different moment, a different place or thing. It jogs that memory. So, for example, think about this. Have you ever been out in public and you smell a cologne or a perfume that reminds you of a loved one? That's implicit memory at play. Or if you're someplace and you smell something being baked or cooked, it remind, and it takes you to a memory of a cookout that you had. That's implicit memory as well. Now, the tricky thing is, while implicit memory works for all the positive things in our life, that's also where a trauma response gets triggered. Okay, It's not that a person wants to remember their traumatic experience, but something hits the senses that sends that sensation down that same axis of the neural pathway and recalls that. And we're going to talk about this more as we go. So when we're talking about learning, for those of you who are educators, for those of you working at providers, for those of you who are parents now working to teach your children from home, let's talk about learning a little bit more. You know, we talked about neural pathways a bit. So learning, the first two things you see here are pretty straightforward, right? Learning is either acquiring or modifying knowledge, skills, or behaviors. But a big key to this, and also when we talk about trauma, is this last one. Learning occurs when exposure is repeated, powerful, and or is reinforced. Repeated, powerful, and or is reinforced. So if I go, in a trauma sense, if I suffer an experience multiple times, that repetition can build a neural pathway 
of learning, and unfortunately, due to that traumatic experience, it gets repeated. Sometimes things are powerful enough where it creates a pathway right off. So if you can remember, I can remember as a child, the first time I touched a hot stove, it only, I only had to do that once to where I learned you never do that. In fact, if I even get close to a stove and it's too hot, you know, we automatically pull back from it. But how could it also be reinforced? You know, during our training, we often show a video of a, a man who from zero, up to age 15, he suffered emotional and physical abuse. And as a result, he had a very strong pathway of belief about himself that he was worthless. Like he verbalized feeling like he was worthless. And he talks about because when he would raise red flags, no one would listen. And then he had a mother who would tell him, if you ever tell the cops anything, they'll come and give us a medal because you're such a horrible, rotten kid who deserved what you got. So for him, that reinforced that belief that, well, I really am worthless, right? So you can learn positive things, positive behaviors, positive beliefs, but you can also negative and detrimental ones as well. But the focus isn't just on our children and the new neural pathways that they need to build. We, as the folks who are the caregivers, the educators, the providers, oftentimes we need to learn and build new neural pathways for how we help our individuals. These are two quotes that I love from a wonderful book by Patty Wilcox. Uh, she has a book, and I actually have it here with me, Trauma-Informed Treatment, the Restorative Approach, Patricia D. Wilcox. She has a lot of really good uh, research and backing, and I really love the book because it's in line with what I teach and think already. But she says here, think about this. If negative consequences could change these individuals, it would have happened already, right? To reduce the frequency of aggressive behavior, we need to get to the root of why the person feels the need to use these behaviors. And here's the kicker, to teach appropriate ways to express their emotions. What I love so much about this slide is there's such a focus a lot of times in our society in general of punishment and the effectiveness of punishment and negative consequences and all these things. When really, where did we get that idea? right? Where do we get that idea? If you look at the success rate of prisons, right, arguably the most putative thing in our, our system, it's not a high success rate. It's not a high rate of rehabilitation. So where do we get this idea that punishment is somehow this magic potion, right? So we're going to talk about this a lot more as we go here. This pretty much says it all. What is the key to our survival at birth relationships? We're one of the few animals where if you give birth to us and leave, we don't automatically on our own make our way to a food or water source, right? We depend on people, not just for our physical needs, but also our emotional needs and to teach us, to model for us. So early positive interactions as infants with our caregivers, this teaches us the basics of how we should be interacting, including boundaries, impulse control, learning to trust and depend on others. Another thing that we, we teach our children is this, self-regulation. You know, how do we 
How do we learn to self-soothe? How do we learn to deal with adversity? My favorite example of this is parents on the playground. You've got two styles of parents. You have the one where the child's running and they fall and they scrape up their knee. They start crying. If they look at the first parent, that parent goes, oh, my God, are you okay? What does that do? It makes the kid freak out, right? But then you've got the other style of parent where the kid looks at that parent after falling and scraping their knee. Then other parent goes, you're all right, go on. The parent doesn't realize it, but in those moments, they're teaching this, right? How to self-soothe, how to deal with pain, how to deal with adversity. Now, a challenge I frequently put out there when I train folks is think about the children you're serving, whether it's young children or whether you serve adults in your setting. What if the folks we're trying to serve, trying to help, haven't had this like they should that you see on the screen? And then they also haven't learned this like they should. And I ask them, and I ask you, think about what could be some of the challenges if you haven't learned these things so far, if you haven't had these experiences like you should. And the reason it's important to think about this is before we get to learning, math, reading, writing, um, and all these things, we really need to look at where's the person at in their development, right? And I really loved how a lot of what uh, Dr. Delahook was talking about with development with this. All this, I feel like, goes hand in hand with that. So when we talk about trauma, what does it mean? And it's kind of interesting because I think it depends on who you're talking to. I think if you talk to my parents, if I talk to my parents about trauma, if I talk to my grandparents about trauma, they would think about it differently. Like, oh, you just got to suck it up and get over that, right? But as we know through research and through our own experiences over time and understanding behavior, that's not always the case. So this is a definition by the National Association State Mental Health Program Directors, right? So the experience of violence and victimization, including, as you see, abuse, neglect, loss, domestic violence, and or the witnessing of violence, terrorism, or disasters. Now, these are all extreme things. We can all agree on that. And these are often things that get labeled big T trauma in our field. Big T versus little t. So big T trauma is typically long-term effects, you know, in some cases lifelong, you know, strong impact. When we talk about PTSD, that's big T trauma. But we all go through what gets labeled as little t traumas in our life, right? Little t traumas are things that have a strong impact initially, but we don't typically end up with PTSD as a result. Now specify. All right. Typically. So these, what you see on this list are some frequent little t traumas that the people we serve in our, our field come across. And what makes this tricky is these, a lot of things that are little t trauma can become big t trauma as far as their effects, especially if these get repeated. If multiple of them occur together, it can have big t effects on a person. So you really can't judge how impactful someone's trauma is. I always tell people and I'll teach our own staff when we when they come in brand new, 
you never want to have the mindset or have a staff that comes in with the mindset of, well, you know, I went through stuff like they did. They just need to get over it. Now, even if you went through the exact same traumatic experiences as someone you care for, it doesn't mean that the effects are the same, that the impact is the same, right? There's too much that goes into that. So we talk about PTSD. This is the DSM-5 definition, right? So if you see A and B, those were the initial criteria, direct personal experience of the traumatic event or directly witnessing another person. Then around 2013, C got added, learning of a close family member or friend's experience of actual or threatened death, serious injury, threat to physical integrity, or just a repeated exposure to aversive details of that person's trauma. I mean, unfortunately, something you see in our field and families of folks that we work with a lot of times is what's called secondary trauma, where we could be traumatized by working with folks with a trauma history, you know, because again, none of us are, none of us have the antidote to trauma. None of us are exempt from experiencing trauma. We all experience trauma, but how do we, how do we deal with it? What kind of support network do we have? What kind of resilience is built there for it? And here you see some key features of PTSD. You know, frequently hear people talk about flashbacks with PTSD, um, which isn't just the memory of a traumatic event, but I actually feel like I'm re-experiencing, reliving the event. Avoidance. Now, this is key when, you know, if you remember, we talked about implicit memory earlier. Avoidance makes a lot of sense with PTSD. I'm going to avoid people, places, and things that bring up that implicit memory of that trauma. So that's something to think about when we're working and trying to serve and help our folks. Cognitive and mood changes, hyperarousal, which we talked about some earlier. Right? Of course, what you see here of these trauma symptoms, this is not an all exhaustive list, but these are some frequent trauma symptoms we've seen in uh, folks that we have served as well as families we've trained that they have reported either in their children in some cases, in themselves, uh, dissociation. So sometimes get some people get that one mixed up with disassociation. So dissociation is kind of like the my nervous system is kind of flooded because of the event. It's almost like taking a step outside of yourself, right? Sometimes you'll hear people talk about blacking out and they don't remember doing something or something happening. That's a form of dissociation. Uh, hypervigilance, we talked about a little bit in the beginning. So someone where on the outside, they look calm, but on the inside, there's a constant uh, anxiety or paranoia, always worried about a trigger or something that might hurt them. And this could manifest in someone where it looks like things are going good, that someone touches them unexpectedly or a loud sound happens. They seem to go from zero to 100, right? When on internally, they were never really at zero. They're more of like 50 or 60, if you think about it that way. Uh, pejorative auditory hallucinations is another one that a lot of people have questions about. So that's folks who unfortunately suffer from hearing voices that tell them negative, destructive things about themselves or things that they should do, right? So again, 
think about ourselves and think about the children that we care for, are we seeing these types of symptoms? Or are there other things that we're seeing? Of course, there can be lifetime responses to trauma. You know, we talk about the big T trauma, the post-traumatic stress disorder, changes in cognitive functioning, which we're going to get into a lot more in the next section where we start talking about the brain further. But look at the health problems. I mean, obviously, prolonged stress, anxiety, it would make sense. Think about heart disease, pulmonary disease. But what about the other things that you see there under health problems? Well, if you look at the engagement of risky behaviors, a lot of those behaviors lead to a lot of those health problems. So then why would someone engage in those risky behaviors with a trauma history potentially? Well, honestly, a lot of times it's reported to be a method of release or escape. Of course, psychiatric disorders up to and including early death in a person. So I want to give some, some recent statistics. So 2017's data is actually the most recent that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has released. So for this one fiscal year, CPS received an estimated 4.1 million referrals involving 7.5 million children. Now, it's important to point out that these are only the reported cases, right? This is just the reported cases, nothing that went unreported or undiscovered. And then of those founded cases, 674,000 children had a founded case of abuse or neglect. And again, these are only the reported cases. And then you see the breakdown of, of the percentage of those 674,000 children. And pretty consistently over the years that we've been doing this, the data in the upper 70th percentile has consistently been neglect. Now, mainstream society thinks that the physical-based abuse is the most prevalent when really neglect is consistently up there. And then when you look at the bottom number, of those 674,000 children, 1,720 died from neglect or abuse that year. So to put this in perspective, 2017, the total population of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, was 672,228. The founded cases of the reported in 2017 was 674,000. So you would have to add almost 2,000 additional people to the total population of D.C. to make that number for that year. Another alarming statistic, individuals with disability, unfortunately, they find themselves at a higher risk of abuse or neglect, as you can see on this slide here. So why would that be? Why would just having a disability of some sort put me at a higher risk of abuse or neglect? Well, there are several factors that go into that. One, the ability to communicate or self-advocate, right? Uh, physically, in some cases, the person may be more vulnerable. Uh, caregiver burnout, that's, that's a very real thing, whether it's at a provider, whether it's at a personal caregiver, whether it's an educator, whether it's a family member, right? This happens. Um, another alarming statistic is, unfortunately, 
being in a residential-based care also increases my chances of abuse or neglect. Also, if you take into account uh, intellectually, someone unfortunately may not understand that what's happening shouldn't be. That's another factor that goes in. You might have someone who frequently makes allegations about things that are found to be inaccurate or false in some cases, but then they report something that's true and people don't want to believe them. So all these things can go into the, those statistics that you see here. So what does this data tell us then? Well, obviously there's a high risk of trauma in those we serve, those we care for, but there's also a high risk of trauma in us, those who care for the people, those who are serving, those who are trying to teach. Therefore, we need to take a universal precautions approach to trauma. Now in the medical field, universal precautions means treat all bodily fluids as if they're infectious. So if you put that in a trauma uh, point of view, basically we interact with everyone as if there's a trauma history. Now, some people will argue, well, I don't think that all of the, the kids I work with or care for have trauma. If, for argument's sake, if that's true, you got nothing to lose by using universal precautions. You're still using an extra mindfulness and extra kindness in how you approach individuals. So now let's put the two together. We looked at trauma. We looked at some of the brain separate. Now we're going to put the two together, kind of like that old uh, 80s drug commercial for those of us old enough to remember that. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Remember that? So this is your brain on trauma. So going a little deeper into the brain now. So we have these five parts that we're going to be talking about. The cerebral cortex, the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, hippocampus, and the thalamus. So the first piece I want to talk about is our thalamus. So if you think of the brain as a nightclub, the thalamus is the door guy, right? You want to enter the club, you got to go into the thalamus. So what the thalamus does is it processes some of our sensory input. So what we hear and what we see, that gets processed by the thalamus first. Now there's a, some other senses that kind of sneak into the back door of the club that we'll talk about here in a moment. But for now with the thalamus, it, it takes in what we see and what we hear and processes it. You know, size, shape, loudness, tone, distance, all those things. And then from there, the thalamus is going to pass that information down to the amygdala. Amygdala is the smallest piece of this equation, but is the most challenging part to try to help someone with. This is our alert center of the brain, where our fight, flight, and freeze is generated. Uh, the amygdala, interestingly enough, it's a Greek word that means almond. The amygdala was named that because it's almond-shaped. So this is where our immediate reaction to a stimulus comes from. So we have the thalamus, what we see and what we hear gets processed there, sent down to the amygdala. Now, we don't automatically fight, flight, or freeze based on the input, right? And part of what helps us regulate the amygdala is the hippocampus. So the hippocampus kind of tells us to wait a moment and think about this, 
right? It takes past memory and adds context to the situation. Like, oh, wait a minute. Before we do this, we've experienced this before. We're all right. Okay. So the thalamus sent the information to our amygdala. And the hippocampus came into play and said, well, you know, we're okay. We're okay. Now, if more abstract thinking or problem solving is needed, then our cerebral cortex comes into play, right? Earlier, we looked at it more broadly as the forebrain. A little bit deeper, we're talking about the cerebral cortex. This gives us more thinking and problem solving. Kind of an easy example for this is it's the end of mowing season, right? Unfortunately, we're in the beginning of it here in Virginia, so I've got a ways to go before I start talking and thinking about this. So the end of mowing season, you walk outside, it's starting to get dark, but you can still see, you go down the steps, you look down, and you see this long, skinny, winding thing in the grass. At first, I look at it, and I jump, and then I'm like, oh, nah, it's that hose again. So if you look at that neurologically, when I looked down and I saw that garden hose, what I saw went into the brain through the thalamus. Then the thalamus sent that down to the amygdala, and the amygdala made me jump because it said, ah, it's a snake. But then the hippocampus said, no, dummy, it's that garden hose that you won't roll up like you should. Now, if I'm smart, <laughs> right, if I use my common sense, I'm going to take that garden hose and I'm going to roll it up so that doesn't happen again. That would be my cerebral cortex coming into play. I'm going to take this, this action now so I don't do this whole process again. Now, there's another big piece to this equation, our prefrontal cortex, right? This is another piece that heavily regulates the amygdala. It basically gives us the reason why we should do something because of an added benefit or why we shouldn't do something because of what could happen. So I love uh, biologist Robert Sapolsky when he talks about the prefrontal cortex. He says, for those of you who um, are saving up for retirement, you're doing something now that's not going to benefit you until years down the road, right? That's a prefrontal cortex action. But this is also the part of your brain where if you're out in public and someone does something so disrespectful or belligerent to you and you just think, oh, I would just love to do this to that person. But you don't because... I'm not going to go to jail, right? I'm not going to lose my job and all these types of things. But that is also a prefrontal cortex. Now, folks with trauma, there's a lot of challenge with that. One, if it's a child with trauma, I mean, prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop in us until mid to late 20s as it is. So if you're taking someone who's either a child or an adult with trauma, it does some strange things to our brain. So the amygdala, which should be the smallest part of this, current research has shown that the amygdala actually increases in volume. And then the hippocampus, which is normally larger, decreases in volume. So if you have a larger amygdala and a smaller hippocampus, what that does for a person is it makes it really hard for them to differentiate between what happened in the past and what's happening now. So there's a strain with impulse control there. Also, a lot of research is showing that the prefrontal cortex 
kind of stops regulating the amygdala in a moment, right? So well, how that can manifest is if you have a child who has that impulse to react a certain way, the prefrontal cortex isn't going to tell them, well, don't do this because you don't want to get in trouble or they didn't really mean it. The impulse hits and they just do it. Now, what I've seen a lot of times with folks we serve is with this challenge is that afterward when they're calm again, they're very apologetic about what just happened. But the problem is if the prefrontal cortex is being compromised like that with trauma, they actually cannot stop that impulse, right? So that's something to think about. A lot of times in training, once I get to here, I'll start hearing naysayers at points where people will say, well, you know, trauma is a buzzword. It'll, it'll go away eventually. Or worse, uh, you're just making, and I've actually had people even up through last year who from time to time will tell me, all this trauma talk, you're just making an excuse for bad behavior. Well, you could almost excuse that if this was many, many, many decades in the past. But now what we know, what we're about to look at a little bit is that trauma physically changes the brain. And here's a couple of great studies we're going to go into to prove this. So DeBellis and his associates, they did several studies looking at the brain scans of individuals of similar physical attributes, same age and everything else. But the difference is in each comparative scan, one already had a history of PTSD and one didn't. So what you're looking at here is two 11-year-old males. The difference is one at age 11 already has chronic PTSD. So if you're looking at, looking at the brain on the left and looking at the one on the right, if you're not already familiar with the study, which one would you guess was the traumatized brain? If you guess the one on the right, you are correct. <laughs> I don't have any prizes to give y'all. I'm sure Guy and Beth will send you a care package. <laughs> so let's let's look at this the traumatized brain here because there's three very prominent physical structural changes. The first one, what you're looking at, are increased size of ventricles of the brain. So why does that matter if my brain ventricles are enlarged? Well, what studies have shown is that this is allows more cerebral spinal fluid to enter the brain, which has been shown to trigger flashbacks. This space you see highlighted here, sometimes people think this is a skull. Now the skull didn't get thicker from trauma. That's actually space between the brain and the skull. So what this means is the overall cerebral cortex of the brain is smaller in this individual. Now, what we don't know is the did the brain atrophy or shrink, or did it just not fully develop? That we don't know. And then finally, at the bottom here, you see these two areas that are highlighted on each side. This is actually the amygdala, right? We have a right and left portion of the amygdala in our brain. So if you look back over here at the, let's see if I can pull this up. If you look over here, that's what the amygdala should look like, like an almond, right? Like its namesake. But look how much increase in volume we're seeing over here on the brain on the right with the amygdala. 
So if you have enlarged amygdala, you have larger brain ventricles allowing more cerebral spinal fluid to come in, and you have a smaller cerebral cortex, what this means is that a lot of times this individual is more likely to be reactive and impulsive in their behavior. The challenge is for us, if you look at a photo of this individual outside of study, looks like any typical 11-year-old you would see in public, right? On this study here, Dr. Roach and his associates, they did PET scans on four individuals who are known to have PTSD, diagnosed with PTSD. And he asked all four of them to write down a detailed account of their trauma history. And then individually, one-on-one, the individuals on the top two and the bottom left, these three individuals had their trauma history read back to them and were asked questions related to it. The one on the bottom right, which is the one, as you can see, labeled neutral minus traumatic, this person has PTSD, but they read them something unrelated. I believe it was a newspaper article. Now, there's some interesting things that you see in this brain. So there's really only one part of the brain that's activated in all four individuals. And that is this bottom portion here. The bottom portion of each brain. And in the upper right hand, it's labeled secondary visual. So that part of the brain is the occipital area of the brain where you visualize things. So all four are visualizing what's being read to them, whether it's their trauma history or whether it's a newspaper article. But then if you look at the top two in the bottom left, you see the, the area to the left on your screen of each brain that's firing hot. That is the amygdala of all three of those individuals. So the amygdala is firing hot just from having their trauma history read back to them. Whereas looking at the brain on the bottom right, the neutral minus traumatic, amygdala is nice and calm, right? So what does this mean? So simply speaking is just by having their trauma history read back to them, they were visualizing it and physiologically they were re-experiencing the event just by having it read back to them, right? Now the one on the bottom right, your neutral minus traumatic, they're visualizing what's being read. Their amygdala is nice and calm, but now they have the brocus area lit in the upper right part of that brain that you don't see activated in the others. The brocus area is largely responsible for processing speech and language. So that individual, they're visualizing what's being read and they can also talk to you about it. They can process. But what about the other three? They're not able to process with you in the moment. So this is a big, big lesson for us, regardless what setting we are. If we're responsible for caring for people and helping them learn, the amygdala and the brocus area can't both be hyperactive, right? You can't be both highly emotional and highly intellectual at the same time. So basically, when things are going good, your amygdala is calm and your brocus area is primarily functioning. But then as we start to escalate, the brocus area starts to go out and the amygdala starts to increase, right? So given that, this is job number one for us. 
if we want to help someone in a moment, and ultimately if we want to teach them better ways, alternative ways, ways that help them more, we have to call them the amygdala first. So that we access the highest level of functioning and understanding and the ability to learn. So that's job number one. We're going to get to job number two ultimately here soon, I promise. So if you're looking at this story here, this was a former individual that we served. So this was her trauma, documented trauma history before coming to us. So if you look at that trauma history, think about being using universal precautions. What, could, what would be some things that you might think would be triggering for this young lady? Then take a look at these. So using universal precautions, practicing universal precautions, it is looking for, okay, what might trigger this individual what might trigger that implicit memory? But then also looking at, okay, what what modifications are we going to make to try to avoid triggering these things? You know, maybe we need to have female staff take the lead with her. Uh, be more mindful of how we uh, do bed checks if you're working in a at a provider or uh, watching the volume of the TV or if things get loud, making a, a safe, quiet area that the person could go to or Offering headphones, whether it's noise-canceling headphones or music to listen to, um, soda cans, right? Soda cans could be a, a trigger. So maybe instead of soda cans, we make sure we only use twist-off bottles. You know, things that really, when you look at it, it doesn't require a lot of extra money and staff to use universal precautions. What it does take is patience, kindness, and understanding. And honestly, a willingness, right? A willingness to learn about this person, which leads to what we all want, healthy relationships, right? Because oftentimes with uh, what gets labeled as negative aggressive behaviors, it gets labeled as maladaptive, right? So what does that mean, maladaptive versus adaptive behavior? I mean, oftentimes maladaptive is how we label behavior that's undesired. Or what I've heard a lot of staff say in the past at places, well, they can't do that in a real world, right? When really for them, their behavior might be adaptive. I'm doing things to make sure that no one hurts me, that I could stay safe. Or maybe I come from a neglect background where I never knew when I was going to get to eat, how much, or if I was going to get another meal. So then when I get a caregiver, another family, another provider, or I get provided regular meals, you might see folks try to take extra bags of snacks and things, and then you'll find it under their bed and things. Because honestly, they have, especially brand new working with us, they don't know if they can trust us that they're going to get their needs met regularly. So again, is it really a maladaptive behavior for them, or is it adaptive? And then how do we teach them? How do we build that trust with that person? And what kind of strategies, what kind of things can we offer that helps a person calm? You know, this is just a list of some things that different age groups of folks that we work with have, you know, told us helps them when they're, when they're having a hard time. But also 
we as the caregiver, as the educators, as the parents, we also need to figure out what can we do to help us calm? What can we do when we're under high stress? Which in this time of COVID, everybody's under stress, right? Whether you're a provider, whether you're a caregiver, whether you're a parent who is now trying to teach and help your child in the home, you don't have those extra resources that you normally would. You know, it's important also to look at how can we keep ourselves calm and in a good place as well? Are there grounding physical activities that we can offer? Right? And these are some different ones that we like to encourage people to offer. Now, all of this is individualized, right? You wouldn't say these are all the things that we use for every person because everyone's different, especially sour candies. We get we get questions about that, like, oh, you're going to bribe them, right? You're just going to give them candy every time. That's not the point. You know, some folks with sensory needs, we have found that if you offer a piece of candy that has a little bit of tartness to it, when they're starting to escalate, one, it's rare that we've been able to find an individual when we do to try that with, that they're like, I'm too mad for candy. Right? Usually they'll take it, put it in their mouth, but they expect it to be sweet. And then when they taste it and it has a little tartness and they kind of like, hmm. Then we come up with something more substantial to help redirect and get them focused on a, an activity that hopefully will help them uh, cope more in the situation. So again, we're not, we would never say keep a pack of warheads or, you know, fireballs in your pocket, pocket to hand out for every situation. Now, all of this is individualized. But also the environment itself. You know, particularly those of you who are at home right now, this could be a challenge because maybe the school or setting they normally are working in, they have sensory rooms and things set up for them. So the question is, is there things that I can do at home that maybe I could set up a little sensory area for, for the child I'm working with that I'm trying to help? Looking at this picture, I kind of wish I had one of those. So if job number one is to calm the amygdala, then ultimately for us, job number two is this, build new neural pathways, right? Identify skills and behaviors to help them manage the trauma response in a new way, right? To help them learn, help them thrive. But we have to teach skills during neutral situations. Teaching does not work during a crisis, right? Because again, Brokus area is going out, the amygdala is getting fired up. We got to take time, consistency. We got to use that repetition, which, as we saw earlier, is a big part of building new neural pathways. So not only am I trying to build that in the children I'm working with, but also me as the person trying to teach this child, I have to adapt how I work and what I'm comfortable with, what I'm used to doing to make sure that it matches so I could be as as good of a collaborator with this child as possible. So our last part here, putting this all together a little bit, all this comes into practice as a trauma-informed approach. So as you see here, we've got five components of this. Safety, right? We got to feel safe first, because if we don't feel safe, nothing else matters, right? Calm the amygdala. And then two, trustworthiness, prioritizing trust, making tasks clear, and maintaining appropriate boundaries. This also means emotional boundaries, right? Trying to be patient, as we've said from the beginning with it, 
and also offering choice as much as possible, especially during this time where there's so many restrictions about where we can go and what we can do. This is huge, making sure that any as many times as we can give them the opportunity to choose and have that control, that's collaborative, right? That's collaborative. That's working with them. And that also shows them that we care, that we're here for them, that they can depend on us. Because ultimately what we want is empowerment, right? For them to feel like they have the skills and coping mechanisms to thrive as much as possible. Kind of tying behavior expectations back with the brain stuff here. So a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, you know, they need to learn to respect me or they're not going to talk back to me and all that type of stuff. Well, let's talk about that just a little bit. So we're going to look at neurologically, what does it take to do these common demanded behaviors? So to be respectful of others requires mood stability thinking before talking, and high executive functioning, a.k.a. forebrain, cortex. Let's be honest. How many friends, coworkers, people you know that have some trouble with that? Mood stability, thinking before talking, right? <laughs> I could think of some. To follow your directions immediately just because you said so. Excellent processing and incoming information, Frustration tolerance. Flexibility follow another's wishes, even if they don't match your own, right? Not talking back. Impulse control. High emotional regulation. Ability to tolerate a perceived injustice. That's a lot of things that have to go right in our brains to be able to do these things without a problem, right? And I point this out because we need to be realistic about placing expectations on the person that even we struggle with, right? Is the expectation vital to their success in learning? Or is it a rule that we made up because I'm the adult and I said so? Or are we trying to apply the template of how I was raised or how I raised my children in some cases to work with individuals with trauma and or disabilities, right? Again, patience, kindness, universal precautions. And even if we have no idea about a person's trauma history, we could still use some basics of interaction, which is simply the more heightened a person gets emotionally, the less talking we do and the more physical space we try to give a person. Because you know for yourself, as your stress and anxiety goes up, you want people to talk to you less and give you more space, right? And if you have folks who's amygdala and everything else is working overtime, even more so, right? Even more so. So just to review, job number one, before they can learn anything, a new skill, a new neural pathway for doing things, they have to feel safe first. So focus on calming the amygdala first, which means before I calm theirs, I have to work on calming my amygdala first so that I can be effective. And then two, for both of us, me and the child, child I'm working with, we need to build new neural pathways. So again, this is just a small piece of what we teach through Carry Systems. Um, if you'd like to find out more information about us and the teachings that we do, the services we provide, you can go to the website you see here, 
ukerusystems.com or email us at info at ukerusystems.com. And I thank you all for your time and attention. All right. Well, Christopher, thank you so much. That that was absolutely fantastic. Yep, thank um, you. you know, I, I had the uh, the privilege of going through the uh, Ukera training and, um, you know, have had some opportunity to learn some of this about kind of trauma in the brain, which is one of the reasons I was really interested in. And this is a topic. And every time, you know, every time you dive in, you, you learn more. And, you know, you brought to this, I think, that really important science piece about, you know, the impacts of trauma. And I think absolutely. Even today in many schools across the nation, and, and uh, there, there's kind of a lack of understanding about the, the actual impact and changes that it causes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was so interesting to me when I when I began to dive into this and, and you kind of got to is just that, you know, as as you know, kids are traumatized, it makes them more apt to respond in ways that may get them re-traumatized. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so this this has been really fantastic. So we definitely want to get to some questions uh, from uh, some of the, the viewers out there. But before we do, I wondered if you might be able to tell us, um, you know, of course we introduced you uh, as, as having a, a major role in helping to develop U Ukero and, and we've talked about that. And this is certainly kind of a piece of, of, mm -hmm. of that and, and a piece of what you do. But I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit more about Ukero from kind of a higher level. Uh, you know, we've talked about it at the Alliance as kind of, you know, hey, here's an alternative to using things like restraint and security. Right. Um, could you talk a little bit more about Ukera for people that might not be familiar with what it is? Sure. So Ukera Systems is actually a division of a provider based out of Virginia called Grafton Integrated Health Network. So we have uh, services provided out of Winchester, Virginia, Berryville, Virginia, Richmond, and also we help uh, run a crisis youth shelter out of Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, we serve early intervention all the way up through adult services. So basically the lifespan. Um, Ukera Systems was born out of a dire need for us. Mm. So by dire need, I mean, we had the same history that a lot of providers have had of, you know, very control-based culture and approach, high incidence and over-reliance and reliance period on restraint and seclusion. To the point where at our worst in 2003, serving about uh, 220 individuals approximately, for that one year in 2003, we did over 6,600 restraints mm -hmm. and 1,500 seclusions. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So on top of that, it makes sense that you're also going to have high incidence of injury for those being served as well as staff. Um, I mean, it was... It was no place that you would want to, to work or send a, mm -hmm. someone that you, you cared for, unfortunately. And we knew we had to change. We knew we had to change. Um, we ended up getting a new CEO who came in with a fresh set of eyes and perspective and really challenged our leadership and actually made a statement of, we're getting out of the restraint business, mm. which for as you can imagine, a place that that's been your go-to tool. It's like, oh, what are we going to do instead type of thing, you know? So they, the leadership team really got together, you know, Kim Sanders and some of the other EDs and looked at, well, if we don't want people to restrain, what would it take to do that? Because it's not just, and unfortunately, a lot of times still people think of the physical, right? 
what's the physical uh, magic pill that will change everything? When before it gets to the physical, as we just spent a little bit looking at, you got to get to the new neural pathways of those providing the services, right? So we start incorporating a lot of trauma training into it and developed what we call comfort versus control, which is basically meeting someone where they're at. And when they're at their worst, us being at our best and how we, we care for that person. Because, I mean, you know, for yourself, there's so many training curriculums around the world that all teach building healthy relationships, use healthy relationships. But where you prove that relationship is not when things are going good, but how do you treat someone when things aren't? That's where we prove that we were who we said we were when things were going good. So once we got that in place, then we had to look at, well, if we don't want people to restrain and our individuals do get physically aggressive, because as you know, sometimes, unfortunately, the escalation for whatever reason doesn't work in a moment. How do we keep from getting to a hands-on situation? So that's where the genesis of the blocking system came into play. And then we start seeing a lot of results and start getting papers and research done. And then we had folks, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, Australia reached out to us. We spent a good while doing going back and forth training and doing consultation there, which if you've ever been to Australia, it's an exhausting plane ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta you gotta have a very you gotta have an iPad with a lot of a lot of memory to keep TV shows if you're gonna fly for twenty four hours straight, right? So we really started looking at focusing more on the US, right? Like if we can do this at Grafton, we could do this in Australia. We could certainly do this in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So about four or five years ago now, we started Ukeru Systems as a division. It really expanded our curriculum with what we teach in Ukeru. Um, so with that, just to give you an idea of where we're at now with Grafton, um, our biggest region, which is in Winchester, Virginia, that had the highest incidence of restraint, we haven't even taught restraint or used it for, I think we're going on eight or nine years now. That's amazing. Um, our Richmond campus, July 1 of this year will be their second year of not teaching restraint. Um, our Berryville campus, which is our psych residential treatment center, where I started out, or we commonly have anywhere from 150, 200 a month there. Now, if they have two or three in a month, it's a bad month. Yeah. You know, let me clarify because you are talking about restraints. You got rid of seclusions altogether. Yeah. Seclusion, we haven't had, I think, on our 10th or 11th year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whereas, Whereas one time, just on our smallest campus in Berryville, that one 84 bed campus used to have 19 seclusion rooms. Oh, my word. Even the school library. Yeah. You know, having looked into to the, the story of Grafton and what you've done with Ukeru and, and and having participated in training as well, you know, we've often kind of said, look, look, if 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 Grafton can do this, others can do this. And, and certainly oh, yeah. have you've been doing the training. But one of the things we hear sometimes um, is that, well, their kids aren't the same as our kids. Our, our kids, uh, they, they, you know, we hear it a lot. Right. Right. <laughs> How do you respond to that? Because I mean, that's such a common thing, and and I know uh, that you you deal with some very challenging uh, situations. So, h- how do you respond to that? 
Well, honestly, the funny thing is we hear that a lot when we talk to people initially. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll hear that from staff when we're training a new facility. Sometimes it's at conferences where they'll go, oh, I bet this would work really well for little kids, but mm-hmm. not for our, our kids are too big, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what's, what's, so, what's so crazy about that is if you look at the restraint data of places, it's not the big individuals that make up the restraint numbers. It's the small young kids. Yep. Yep. Now, I this is just my opinion on this. I don't think it's that these young small children are magicians out of aggression. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that all, oh, you know, they have the extra gas tank at all. I think honestly, if we're being blunt and we're being serious about it, I think it's a lot of times it's easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're smaller, so it's easier just right. to do this from the staff's point of view then deal with it now if i've got someone big like my co-worker patrick he's six six three hundred pounds staff are going to try to rush in and restrain him they're going to be like maybe we'll talk him out right (laughs) unless it involves a seagull right (laughs) right he does have trauma (laughs) with the seagull that's right. right Uh, yeah, because we certainly hear that a lot. And I've looked at the numbers myself for, you know, just taking my state's number and see exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, the highest numbers are often kindergarten, first grade, second grade. By the time you get to middle school, the numbers begin to decline. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've had that same kind of revelation, like what happens there? Um, you know, and certainly there can be multiple factors, but it is interesting to kind of see that, that you know, that correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go to let's go to a question here real quick, if we can. Okay. Um, or, or did you have other things to say about? It? Okay, great. Just make sure I don't cut you off there. So uh, my good friend Cat uh, Wolf, um, and uh, she asked a question here that said, "What condition responses were discovered as Grafton transitioned to using Eucare systems? Uh, how did you work through them or with them?" So I, I assume she's kind of talking about, you know, maybe um, you know trauma that kids had already experienced and how you kind of rebuilt. Um, what would you what would you say to that? Or is she talking about the uh, staff? Oh, that may be as well. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of house reading. It was that's okay, great. Okay. I mean, I I could tell you that there's a lot of skepticism when it was first uh, the transition was coming because again, you do what you know, and for so many years. The big tool in, in our field a lot of times has been restraint and or seclusion. I mean, a lot of places, you people would be shocked how much seclusion is still used, yeah. even in public schools, right? We oh, see, we oh, yeah, right. You have firsthand uh, knowledge there. Um, and honestly, the responses were the same that we hear everywhere. Well, if staff don't have restraints, then these kids are going to walk all over us. People are going to get hurt. And, you know, if, well, I understand trauma, but they've got to learn, you know, if we're, if we're kind to them, if we don't have all these punishment based things that we could throw out in programming, then, you know, then we're going to lose control. We're not going to have any control when really we had to get them to realize that you never had control. Right. Mm-hmm. That is a brilliant statement. And I really loved when you went into the three things about um, the, the being respectful of others and the things that kids don't do that really irritate adults. Sure. Um, that they're not being respectful. They're not following directions immediately. And they're, they're talking back. 
And these are the things that really tick off adults. And, mm-hmm. and, and they're the little tiny things that end badly because adults can't take it. Um, and, and so many adults are, um, and, and I'm not, uh, I don't mean to say that I'm different from <laughs> other adults. I'm not in the front of a class of 30 people, mm-hmm. but we're kind of conditioned to think that the kids should do what we say they should do. And we have, and that's the way the world has brought us up kind of once you're an adult, these kids to do what you say. So I think it's really, and I had to learn as a parent uh, and a grandparent um, to, you know, uh, thicken my shell um, and not be, it wasn't so much as being, it was for me, it was not getting my feelings hurt Mm -hmm. as much, not so much as being mad but not getting my feelings hurt was more for me with yeah. the kind of talk back kinds of things that we have to do. These are kids whose brains aren't fully developed or whose brains are impacted by trauma. Right, right. So everything you said, I kept thinking about my lens was also on the kids with disabilities because those kids whose um, cortex isn't developed um, as part of ADHD or, or mm-hmm. other um well, any kids not fully developed until you know you said at 25 or or older. They, we as adults have got to go to grip mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and stop taking things personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciated your uh, that piece about how so much depends on us being able to um, uh, become first. And well, something kind of piggybacking off of that. Something that I think is. A crucial, it's such a simple statement, but it's so crucial. And I heard it in uh, Dr. Green's presentation. I heard it in Dr. Delahook. And I'd say a derivative of it, even when I train, is people do well when they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a simple, it's such a mm-hmm. simple thing, but people do well when they can. So if they're not able to do what they should, if they're struggling, then if all we do is look at that, then we are, we're going to get super frustrated. We're going to get mad. We're going to get upset. But if we can just take a second, listen to it instead of immediately reacting, but look at, huh, why do I think they're saying that? Why do I think they're doing that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think that goes into us calming our amygdala, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those two premises and and ever since, uh, you know, I had a conversation um, some time ago with with Kim Sanders and she kind of talked about this um, with me in terms of kind of the comfort versus control. And then, you know, you you said this again, you know, when when they're at their worst, we need to be their best. Absolutely. And the problem is that very often in situations that begin to escalate when when a child becomes um, dysregulated and perhaps inflexible and having a difficult time, uh, the adult often becomes inflexible. And, and, you know, so rather than helping them to co-regulate, you end up with something that leads to things like, uh, you know, behavioral escalations that lead to restraint and seclusion. You even mentioned things like, what do you do? Well, like physical distance is important. Uh, mm-hmm. My son, unfortunately, was somewhat of an eloper if he really got overwhelmed. And that typically was rare, but he needed some space then. And the first thing, of course, mm-hmm. people would do would be then to restrain him and and put him through trauma. Yeah. Um, so it really it really is a loop. But I, I really appreciate, you know, kind of your take on this. And 
I also like what you said um, because I took I took the training as well, mm-hmm. and and one of the one of my take home messages from the training, and and probably a lot of this was having Kim Sanders uh, having neurons dedicated in my brain here, but was the fact that you know you you taught the the trauma, you taught the the, the techniques to to work with kids and to build relationships, and then of course you taught the physical intervention. But in a perfect world, that physical part that happens less and less and less because really what you're doing is building the relationships, but it's always a challenge to make sure people don't focus because sometimes you say, who care? And somebody that is aware of it might get, well, yeah, that's the thing where they use the pads. And it's like, no, 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 there's so much more that happens before, before that. Um, We do that all the time because sometimes we'll go in before we do a training. Some places will have us come and kind of give what we call the Grafton story. You know, what I kind of give you a snapshot of, when really what they're doing is they're waiting for the pads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like everybody wants to know about the pads when really in an eight hour, like if you went through to be able to use it as a staff person or we take a parent through a training, that is really absolutely the smallest piece of the right. whole thing. Right. But that's what everyone has the most anxiety about. Like, what's right. this? Right. And I blame Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I do want to give you a chance for um, Lael. I'm, I'm sorry if I say your name wrong. Lael, um, yes, thank you. Because um, I think this is an important question. We get these this kind of thing of, you know, we're endangering others. We've got to keep the rest of the staff safe. And I expect you have a good answer for that. Um, I imagine that this is in response to justification for restraint use i'm guessing yes that's that's kind of a personal uh peeve of mine is criteria for those types of interventions because it's always imminent use or imminent threat of harm to self or others right Mm -hmm. but the problem is what is imminent threat varies from person to person oh yeah i mean we you could see it, someone brand new coming through the door for training. If they are new to this field, the first time the kid's like, ah, they're like, oh, imminent threat. And you're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But then you have someone who's been in the field for a long time. And then you see them and they're like incredible in how they, they're patient they are and all. And it's trying to get the, the folks who are newer to the field to learn from these seasoned staff who have that, develop that patience and tolerance. But also, I mean, I always think that, like for me, it would be really hard for me to work direct care again if that was a tool that I was taught and expected to use. Because mm-hmm. so many things can go wrong and it requires, you know, no hesitation. It requires uh, correct movement and mechanics and timing. There's just too much that can go wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, you see so many cases, and I'm sure you all are on top of this all the time. You see article after article about restraint death, yeah. you know, right. just in U.S. alone. And I really think that a new criteria needs to be if I did this restraint and the worst thing happened, would I be able to say that I did everything I could before I did that? Right, right. Yeah. And even, you know, I mean, of course, one of the problems is that this varies wildly from state to state. So yeah. if you look across the U.S., we don't have a federal law in, in return in terms of restraint seclusion. And I live in a state, Maryland, that actually has one of the stronger laws. And we are an imminent serious physical harm um, mm-hmm. state. 
And and it is defined. Imminent serious physical harm is defined in such a way that really it is about, you know, a serious bodily injury. It's a, a right. life or death type of injury. But even with that as a criteria, you know, because I've gotten that discussion with people as well, like, well, it means something different. I'm like, well, no, it does mean life or death or, or these serious bodily injuries by Maryland law. But but the fact is that it routinely happens for lack of respect, for noncompliance, for minor behaviors. Yeah. And even with it as the criteria for the law, it's still happening. And part of the issue is that we, we need we need this brain science. I mean, Beth, Beth I'm sure, um, you know, we've been talking about this a lot. Mm-hmm. How important is it is to bring this brain science part uh, to our schools and to educators? Because what happens is in a school, this is if this is what's being taught, you know, people aren't maliciously doing this because they want to hurt children. They're, yeah. they're doing it because this is what they're taught is a proper thing to do if this situation arises. And we've got to get this neuroscience and brain science into schools mm-hmm. so that we can better support kids and avoid escalations in the first place. And that's you know, one of the reasons I'm a big fan of, of what the work that you guys have done is because you make an emphasis on this trauma informed um, approach. Yeah. And also, I think that also backs up what uh Dr. Green was talking about during his presentation with you all is we need to get away from thinking about crisis intervention and get into prevention. Absolutely. Proactive thinking, proactive steps, and couldn't agree more on that. Absolutely. So I have uh, another one that I want to share here. It's not a question, but I think coming at, at you know, oh. we're coming towards the end here. I'm sure I will give Beth the final question because she's always got a final question. Oh, thank uh, you, Neil. Well, now that I put her on the spot. But, uh, you know, this was a really nice thank you. And, uh, you know, no question for me, but I just wanted to thank you for this presentation. Oh, thanks uh, for having me. Hour and a half well spent, in, in my uh, opinion. Thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed and wholeheartedly agree with your approach and love from across the pond. Uh, keep up the absolutely fantastic work. And what I want to say to this, I know it's not a question, but what I want to say to this is I so much would encourage you. I mean, this is this is great for for parents, but I would mm-hmm. so much encourage our, our parents out there that might be watching. Share this with your teacher. Share this with your school. Share this with others. The more we can do to begin to get people thinking. And, and I know that trauma informed is beginning to get a bit more traction you know, throughout the country, but we really do need to get this in the hands of people that are that are working with kids and can help them. But uh, thank you for that that comment. And, and I just want to echo, Christopher, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that Kim um, suggested, you know, you, you uh, presenting for us here. Uh, this has really, really been helpful. So with that, Beth, you always have one more. <laughs> I will make the comment, but I, I do. Um, I appreciate it too. And I, I think mm-hmm. even your way of presenting one of the things that is so good for kids. Stephen Stephen Porges is a uh, very well-known neuroscientist and he talks Uh about the polyvagal theory. And one of his things is how our facial expressions are and how our body language is and how our voice prosody, which was a new word for me. But your voice is very calming as as you talk. And, I and wish my wife thought that. <laughs> <laughs> are you different at home than you are here? But it is a very nice calming thing. And I think all of us um, often don't under, don't realize how we come across it. And there's so much we get it caught up in our everyday uh, doing what we think we're supposed to. I know that's been a really big thing with me when things haven't gone well. It's because not because I did what I wanted to, but because I did what I thought I was supposed to. I held up the rules that the organization told me I had to. Um, And so I think you've given so much good information. And I echo what Guy said, share this with 
with your, um, all your family, friends, all your schools, all that. It's just been packed full of great information. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah. Feel free. Anyone to email us, call us. We love to talk to people. So. Yeah. I, f- I first came in contact with, with Kim as a parent, just reaching out, looking for answers. And, and I can't tell you how, um, how much it meant to me that, that, you know, here I am just some random parent out there that Kim was willing to spend. I think our first <laughs> conversation was probably well over an hour uh, yeah. and, you know, kind of help and offer some input and, and what the work that you guys are doing. I mean, there've been some great press about it recently uh, down at the Chicago Tribune and others talking about kind of Ucaro and this other approach. Um, you know, really appreciate all that you're doing and, and thank you for, for joining us today. I've got it. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. I've got a quick announcement and uh, then we'll wrap things up. So, uh, the announcement is, of course, as uh, Christopher had mentioned as well earlier, we'll actually have someone else from Ucaro next week. Uh, we've got Allison Hoffmaster, who will be joining us and uh, talking about kind of the creative things that she's doing to uh, implement kind of comfort versus control during really challenging times. So we're looking forward to that. Again, thank you, uh, Christopher and Beth. Uh, again, thank you for your help. And that wraps up uh, this session for us. And we look forward to seeing you again uh, next week. Uh, We've got more great things coming. So thank you so much. And we will see.